You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pot seat and tray table are in their upright and locked position. Pull out your Hugo Award nomination ballot and add the Functional Nerds podcast to your best fan cast selections. <laughs> Once you have done this, the airlock will seal and life support systems will engage. We hope you enjoy and survive your trip to the Functional Nerdverse. Love it. What do you think, Patrick? Too subtle? Love it. No, love it. Oh, okay. All right. There we go. New <laughs> intro for like the intro. next... Oh, thank you. Yes, and it's that's going to make Cannoli Joe so happy. I wonder if the if the subliminal messaging will come through. <laughs> it was subtle. It was subtle. I mean, yeah, we we try not to be really ham fisted about things, but you know, you as you, you can appreciate that, I'm sure. The the voice, by the way, that I'm speaking to here is the New York Times best selling author of uh, the, the Sigma Forces series, now with a brand new novel out in a new series. The novel being the Starless Crown. We got James Rollins with us here today. James, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. All right, so I mean, I'm not going to lie. You've written a lot of books. Your your whole bibliography makes me very tired thinking about the amount of work that goes into it. And so I am both full of admiration and also empathy. And also, how does it feel to launch a new series when this is very much not your first rodeo? Like, you you know what you're doing. You've been here before. How's how's to start from, from the beginning? Well, first, it's fun to start a new series. Back when I first started writing, I refused to do a series. I wasn't going to do a series. I told my mm-hmm. publisher, you know, I want to do individual adventures. I have problems with a, with the whole concept of a series of books. And they were saying, well, what, why? What's your problem? And I said, well, it's what I call the Jessica Fletcher syndrome from Murder, She mm-hmm. Wrote. Here's a woman from Cabot Cove that's always stumbling over dead bodies. You know, I've never stumbled over a dead body. You begin to wonder what's wrong with that woman? What's wrong with Cabot Cove? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you know, only that would make sense in that series would be like the final episode reveals that she's a serial killer and she's been framing people all along. <laughs> then the series makes sense. Then, then I would understand why she's coming across all these dead bodies because she's the instigator, but it's also hard. Netflix to, uh, now just needs to hire you to do the murder. She wrote reboot. Just, I'm just going to throw that out there. I would yeah. love that. <laughs> and, and in that final episode, I, they bring back Magnum P.I. Okay. All right. No, it's we're already we're already getting distracted by shiny things. Let the man finish, Townsend. You bring back Magnum PI to Buster. Come on, it's the it's oh, the yeah, final okay. crossover. Oh yeah. Perfect. But the other the other the other <laughs> problem with the whole murder she wrote, you know, is it's hard to maintain jeopardy. You know, you can you know, but somebody puts a gun against Jessica Fletcher's head. You know that triggers triggers as much as you might want to be pulled. It never gets pulled because you know yeah. she's in next week's episode. So uh, to me, I, I resisted doing the series, and so I was all my early stuff was individual adventures, and then I had this idea for Sigma, which is based on a you know set, basing a series on a. A group of characters rather than an individual, mm-hmm. so the, uh, sh- the, the the light can shine on various members to to highlight them a little bit more dramatically in a book. I can kill off main characters because Sigma Force can always recruit new members, which those that have read my series know I do that. But my mind is weird. I, I still, even though I have the Sigma Force series, my sort of bread and butter series, I'm always slightly wandering off subject and tracked a little bit. You know, if something pops in my head and intrigues me, it's hard for me to let it go. I'll make mm-hmm. notes. I'll try to shove it in a folder and put it aside. Hopefully, you know, try to get it out of my mind, but it, I can't do it. It gets stuck. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to do a gothic vampire series. <laughs> okay, that's totally off subject, but, you know, why would I want to do that? And I got thinking about it, and then I got an idea. And a friend of mine who's an author that is sort of gothic, sort of historical fiction, you know, I called her and said, I had this idea, you know, it's not quite in my wheelhouse. You know, I can do the, the monsters, the weird creatures, the roller coaster adventure, but it needs to sort of this gothic quality that I, it's, I've tried to write it and it sucked. So, you know, would you help me? And Rebecca Cantrell, great writer, award-winning writer, said, well, you know, Jim, you know, what's this, what's this book about? You know, what, what do you want me to write with you? I said, it's about vampires. And she goes, no. I will never write a book about vampires. So then I laid it out and told me how, you know, the cool stuff behind it, how it's all tangled with Roman Catholicism and history and, and, and intrigued her enough that eventually I conned her into writing it with me. And so when, you know, for this series, the Starless Crown, you know, I had this idea for setting a story. I didn't know what the story was going to be. I just read an article in scientific America about tidally locked planets. 
Now that's planets that okay. circle their sun with one side forever facing the sun, one side forever in darkness. Our moon is a tidally locked satellite. You know, we only see one side of the moon because it's, it's, it makes one rotation for every pass around the Earth. So then I began researching a little bit uh, just because I thought it was intriguing. The concept and it was of interest. I thought, well, can life exist on such an extreme planet where you have one side frozen, one side you know burnt to a crisp? And so I talked to some astrophysicists and said, oh, yeah, you know, the, because of the thermodynamics of this planet, the way uh, – you would uh, move the winds would move between the hot and cold it would it would actually you know thermodynamically there would be a livable climb between those two extremes so theoretically life could exist there then i began wondering well, what would that life look like now me being a veterinarian with a background in evolutionary biology that's you know you know that's just i can't not explore that so like then i moved <laughs> up to xenobiologists you know and look with them you know these are the extremes what, what what might that look like how might life devolve and evolve to fill these niches uh and my my little folder became thicker and thicker, and then <laughs> then then COVID happened, and all of a sudden, you know, one of my books got shifted because they were trying to avoid the closure of bookstores. So, by one of my single books got shifted, and also I had a window in which. I didn't have anything to do. Either I could write another Sigma book or write something else. And so I thought, well, this has been sitting on my shelf for a while. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and attempt this. Now, it's uh, it's a fantasy novel. It's sort of a, a – but also I call it a scientific fantasy because it's a lot of weird science yeah. and biology. And, and But at the same time, it sticks to sort of the fantasy tropes. And, and it's a poorly kept secret that James Rollins, once upon a time, wrote fantasy. Under a different pen name, James Clemens, I used to write a fantasy series for Delray Books. And uh, – Mr. Rollins became more successful than Mr. Clemens. Mr. Clemens sort of disappeared for a while, but I couldn't quite let go of my love of writing fantasy. For a while, I was writing a fantasy. As they say in fantasy, he passed into the West. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) So, but I I couldn't quite let it go. I enjoyed doing that because I was writing a fantasy year and a thriller year, Mm -hmm. which might seem weird, but I liked writing that because, Mm -hmm. you know, my staccato paced thriller requires a little bit of different. uh, uh, writing style and mindset and, and technique and writing a fantasy, which is world building, a little richer, a little deeper, uh, is a different. You're on a different gear. And so I liked, you know, writing part of my year in this in this gear and the second part of my year in that gear. Because I think if I just wrote a staccato pace thriller after staccato pace thriller after staccato pace thriller, I get a little bored. And, you know, readers are, they've got a good nose on them. They, they know when a writer's maybe bored with their own material. And that's my secret fear is somebody's going to start saying, Jim looks like he's bored with this stuff. And that's why I have a tendency to, to wander off track is I, I want to always write from a place of passion. So if something really intrigues mm-hmm. me and is excited for me to, to want to tackle, uh, then I'm going to do that. Whether my publisher is thrilled about it or not, uh, it's confused mm-hmm. them, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'd probably be more successful if I just stuck to that rut. That rut. Yeah. But, uh, you know, HarperCollins, I've been with the same editor. Since mm-hmm. uh, she pulled me out of the slush pile with my first novel, now you know she's nice. now still my public my editor. Twenty years mm-hmm. later, twenty plus years later, and uh, I forgot what he was talking about. What was I got off track of talking about my editor? <laughs> it's fine. Oh. You're, you're well, talking you're, about the series, and we're just we're on this journey you, with you. You were confusing yeah. the publisher. You were confusing. Oh yeah, the so, yes, yeah. So like I've been with Harper for a while, and they had. But again, I'm on the West Coast, they're on the East Coast, you know, never the twain shall meet. Um, and uh, so I, I never actually met my editor until I'd probably pub- HarperCollins had published about 10 of my novels. So finally, oh, wow. I was invited to, to New York, to the, you know, the great, you know, black model of, of HarperCollins publishing in New York City. And, you know, I, I had my first meeting with everybody. So, I, you know, you're up at the top boardroom, there's every member of the uh, the publishing staff is there the marketing department sales department the, the people that are you know talking to barnes and nobles or borders that back upon a time once upon a time and the head of of harper collins is at the end of the table and there's like probably 15 people 20 people in the room and i'm at one side of the table he's at the other side of the table and he stands up leans on the table both fists looks across at me and goes jim just one question for you so what sir he goes we don't we're not really quite sure what you write <laughs> Okay, well, you just Words. published 10 of my novels. I hope you've got some hint. Uh, so <laughs> I, I'm a little squirrely about, you know, what I'm going to give my publisher next. Sometimes they're thrilled. Sometimes like, why that? So um, mm-hmm. so that's how I end up with you, the new series. You, you keep them yeah. on their toes. You keep them, yeah. you, keep them you know, you're, you're, you're doing for the publisher exactly what you're doing for the readers, right? You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're making them go, ooh, what's this? 
Well, oh, it's, me, yeah, me, yes, yes and no. It, this it's, been conf- it, it's been confusing. Um, <laughs> like when uh, the Blood Gospel came out, which uh, again was a vampire novel, but nowhere in the book flap does it ever mention the word vampire. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, people bought the book thinking, oh, it's another James, you know, histo- mysteries, historical mystery combined with weird science, and they're reading it, and all of a sudden vampires pop up. They're like, I got to page 76, and you got vampires in your novel. <laughs> Qua? What are you doing? <laughs> What has happened? <laughs> but it but I, I think up being a very popular series. I mean, I think you need to be fair to yourself in this, though, not just in the, on the level of talking about wanting to keep up your own passion and your own excitement. But I think there are through lines, right? I mean, the Starless Crown is it is not Sigma Force, but it is a ensemble cast um, that has you know lots of strong personalities, lots of really memorable characters um, who are you know full of their own flaws and full of their own difficulties. And so, I guess I, I as someone who loves and writes ensemble casts in her own work, like I I always want to hear from people about what brings them to that. Like why why this particular group of misfits and and broken folks uh, that we're spending time with here. Well, it's definitely, I, again, of all my work, I think even the vampiric novel was an ensemble cast. Um, mm-hmm. To me, I like telling stories from multiple viewpoints because it's, it's A, it's, it's convenient if you need to give your readers information from another part of the story. If it's all, uh, you know, first person, I've written a first person novel. Boy, those are hard because everything has to be through the view of that character. It's like, <laughs> yep. you know, I, I need to give the reader some information that's over here, but, you know, I, I can't because no one's over there. Um, so, and then you run into that, as you know, Bob, exactly. That's a lot of that. (laughs) And so, uh, so I prefer just from the, the, uh, the ease of telling the story ensemble is actually is easier, but then of course you have to then get the, the internal world of X number of characters in a novel, which is also its own challenge. Um, but it's also fun being able to switch hats, you know, change your shoes and hop into somebody else's viewpoint. It's similar to switching genres or switching storylines. Um, it's, it's, it's for me as a writer, it's nice to be able to, you know, stop this part of the story and really change gears again and be in this, you know, yeah. villain standpoint or the, or different character standpoint. And so I'm always looking for characters that are, are, are diverse, that are unique in their own way. Um, I don't, I want to make sure that each voice of those characters is, is distinct in and of itself. You know, I always believe that you should be able to take a, you know, pluck a piece of dialogue out of any part of the book and you, the reader should be able to know just from the dialogue who is actually speaking that because it should be unique. The character should be so unique in that reader's mind that the cadence, the way they speak, uh, you know, you know, Yoda, you know, if you got a line from Yoda, you know, who, you know, Yoda spoke that line. Uh, so, you know, I think everything, so it's, I think it just makes a richer world besides, you know, my own passion of looking at the world from many different viewpoints. Uh, you can with a, an ensemble cast, especially in this world, because I have to present a pretty complicated world while at the same time, keeping the story going. I've got to sort of explain the history of a, of a tidally locked planet, you know, how that, the, how that, uh, you know, if you're living at the extreme edges of that, where you know that we're at the you know close to the frozen side or close to the uh, uh, burnt side, you know what what's life? What is life there? What how's it involved? So it's hard to do that from just a couple point of views. You almost need to 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 you know pepper these characters around this landscape so that yeah. you, you bring that world to life through the uh, the life of the, each of those characters. You, I mean, you want the ecosystem such as it exists of the of the whole planet to make sense, so that people don't feel like on one side of the planet is Snowpiercer and the other side of the planet is Arrakis. You know, they, <laughs> right. th- there has to be some sense of of commonality of place, even as there's this extremity, and that's got to be really challenging. It's challenging and fun. I mean, that's again yeah. one of the ways I can I can you know stoke that passion for a story is by challenging myself. You know, I, I like, mm-hmm. I tried to do that gothic novel. I tried to write that gothic quality of a vampire novel and realized, you know what? It's just, I can't do it. It's just not in my wheelhouse. I have to recognize that. And that, that is just not a skill set I have. Uh, yeah. Rebecca is, is brilliant in that, uh, you know, she can with just a, you know, a few strokes of her pen uh, and not being, you know, overly verbose or, you know, requiring, dense pages of description to, to bring a, a gothic quality. She, she was really efficient about creating that world, but not bogging down the story, which I really appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. 
So, I mean, um, Patrick, I don't know if your ears perked up at this, but mine did. And you and I are, are cut from similar enough cloth that I think I, I want to rewind to something which is not about books. Um, sure. you, you, you dropped very casually and just like sailed right past it because you were, you're focused on talking about your books, which we love. And that's why you're here. But um, I think you have the most interesting combo career of any author we've had on because most of them are like, well, they're like me. They're like, oh, I write books and I teach or like I, I write books and I'm a librarian or like I write books and I'm a veterinarian. Tell me everything. <laughs> is it is it big critters? Is it little critters? Is it all the things in between? Like I like tell me about the fuzzies. Is it is it an inner city vet clinic where you actually deal with gunshot wounds? You know. Oh oh, why do you have to go? This is getting dark. What? <laughs> Patrick Louise, what are you doing? No, I, I've been when I went to school. I went to the University of Missouri Columbia. I, I grew up in St. Yeah. Louis, and uh, so you're trained at everything. But my practice, I had a practice for 15 years in Sacramento. Uh, it was mostly small animals, but also exotics. Again, I just couldn't stick mm, okay. to just one thing. I, I wanted to do weird things. So, you know, I'm that very snake that came yes. in or that bird that came in was always more, you know, after you do X number of spades a day, you know, you're you're thrilled yeah. to see a bird, you know, with some weird problem <laughs> come in. Um, but also, I basically said, you know, if you can if you can walk anything you can walk through my front door, of my clinic, I will see. So somebody challenged me that by bringing their horse into the clinic. So uh, you know, <laughs> if, if it could fit to the door, I was going to see it. You know, my clients became a little uh, suspicious that something was going on with Doctor Jim, uh, mostly because of you know the you know, the poster in the lobby. You know, get your cat spayed, get a free book, uh, and you know, <laughs> questions began That's the to best arise. promotion ever. Oh my god! Exactly, isn't it? <laughs> It's amazing. So, Need something to read while your cat yells and tries to lick itself <laughs> in the cone of shame. Well, exactly. We got you. Go. Yeah. So, uh, you know, questions began to rise. You know, Dr. Jim, what's your long term goals in life? You know, you're, you're, you've got the successful veterinary practice, but now you're writing. You know, what do you, well, where are you heading with this? And I thought, well, you know, I'm draining your dog's anal glands, but I'll try my best to answer this question. Um, you know, for 15 years, veterinary medicine was my paycheck. That was my way I was earning. You know, my early novels, I did not make a lot of money. That was basically a hobby. It was doing for fun. It was a little extra cash in the pocket, but it wasn't going to be a career move. Well, things began to shift after a period of time, but that changed. But at that point, it wasn't. So I said, you know, maybe down the line, it'd be really cool mm -hmm. to flip that around and have, you know, my writing be my paycheck and veterinary yeah. medicine by hobby. And so, you mm -hmm. know, I haven't, you know, people often describe me as a former veterinarian. Now, I, I mm -hmm. did sell my practice. I don't practice full time, but I still do volunteer work. I work with a group that traps feral cats, wild cats, have a trip, trap and release program. They collect a bunch of feral cats. They bring them to the shelter uh, one Sunday a month. They spend about eight hours spaying and neutering them. Then they're released. Um, so basically now what I do with my veterinary degree is just remove genitalia, but, uh, you know, it's a hobby. So I pretty much achieved that goal of what I wanted to, you know, went back to talking to my clients. So there's you know, like, again, I, there's like a hundred sound bites here that are just absolute gold. <laughs> and I don't even know, like, how are you, how, like, it's a good thing we don't have to make like trailers for episodes because the sheer amount of out of contextness that, that this could yield. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, you're doing, where, you're doing God's work there. Where, where my brain goes though is, uh, so you're still volunteering. You're still doing some stuff. I know, so I'm, I'm actually, I grew up in Fresno, so I know Sacramento, but uh, I, I live in Colorado now and here, my vet, so I, I have a, I have a cat. He's, I don't know how old he was when I, when I rescued him from the Dumb Friends League. They weren't sure how old he was. So we guesstimate that he's over 20 at this point. He, and, and, you know, he's, he's old okay. and he's cranky and he's having problems with his hips and stuff. But I, I have a really good vet. The vet here. COVID has overwhelmed them. Oh yeah. And they're not the only ones, but they're, they're like, they talk about it quite a bit on Facebook and, and they say, you know, uh, so many people got pets during COVID and, and it's just been insane. Mm -hmm. I, I'm wondering, like, ha, obviously you're still in, in contact with people. You're still talking to sure. other vets and you're still doing, like, is it the same in California? Are they just overwhelmed with, with so many people getting pets during COVID? It's, it's a combination of that. It's also trying to find help. Um, there's a, a, a dearth of, of animal health technicians uh, mm -hmm. to assist veterinarians. Uh, my local veterinarian uh, up in Tahoe, he uh, basically is like, Jim, come work for me. And it's like, I can't. I said, <laughs> well, can you just be my animal tech for a day? So, well, maybe you know, yeah. need some help. I'll give you some help. Uh, 
so that's a, another issue is that because of COVID, they're just find, they're finding having problems finding help. The other problem is, is that it's now we're seeing a shift out of COVID. A lot of these people that have acquired pets are now getting rid of those pets. Um, they're no yeah. longer fitting in their yeah. life. So there's a, been an upsurge in, uh, of, uh, of dumping at shelters, yeah. which is, again, yep. where I work. So I see that every day. Uh, I just adopted a dog last uh, maybe six months ago. That was that, that situation was acquired during COVID, dumped. So now mm-hmm. Charlie's with me. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, definitely a problem right now. It's, it's horrible right now, but also I'm slightly envious because, you know, my idea of the perfect veterinary clinic would always been a blank front frontage with a slot and the, the client would just post the problem on the animal's collar and drop their animal down the slot. And I'd be at the other, oh, catch yeah. the animal, read yeah. the thing, deal with the thing, give the Let dog. me deal with Never the quadruped. To, you bipeds are trouble. Have, exactly. Oh boy. Yeah. Like, not a human psychology. Well, so pretty much that's what's happened with COVID. And that's where we're at is that, you know, they yeah. sit in their car in the, in the parking lot and yeah. talk to them, the health technician by phone. And then somebody comes and gathers a dog, gives it to the veterinarian. You never see the veterinarian. It's like, Oh, that, yep. that's, that's yeah. tempting. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the vet that I go to, they have a, they have a entryway that you walk into and then there's a different door to go into the veterinary. And they never really used that entryway until COVID. And now that's the drop off. So yep. when you pull up in the parking lot, you call them and they say, okay, yep, uh, bring, bring, bring shadow up. And I take him up and I set him on the counter and then I leave and then they mm-hmm. come out and get him and take him back. And then, yeah, I go sit yeah. in the car and they call me. Uh, but you know, Perfect. Jessica Fletcher aside, Jessica Fletcher aside, <laughs> have you considered the, the mystery series of the vet having to solve mysteries? Well, first of all, a, I get that question asked a lot. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> Why don't, you write about a vet- Why don't you write about a veterinarian? Uh, well, initially, because I was writing to escape, you know, I was writing in my sure. lunch hour, cracks in time while I was, while I was doing both. And you know, I didn't want to write about a veterinarian while being a veterinarian all day. You know, I wanted to put on my Indiana Jones hat and whip and, and go on an adventure. Sure. Uh, it, was, it, was my, it was my, you know, pressure relief thing when I was, when I was early writing. And, uh, you know, but now that I've stopped practicing full time, uh, a weird thing began happening is I got an, an email from uh, a reader who said that, Jim, you know, I've been re- enjoying your books from the very beginning and, you know, about eight books in now, uh, all of your characters now have animal sidekicks. You, know, you got a <laughs> military war dog, you got a, you know, an orphan jaguar cub, you got a sign language speaking gorilla. What's up? And I realized <laughs> I was unconsciously, because I was no longer practicing full time, the animals, I wasn't getting that, that you know, because I, I always wanted to be a vet. You know, one side of my brain loves animals, loves science, loves medicine. And what a, that wasn't being fed by my daily, you know, working as a veterinarian. They, these animals began creeping into my writing. But I was not, it wasn't a conscious choice. Like, I'm going to put animals in. It just that, like, oh, it would be cool to have an animal here. I, you know, I'm going to play with this animal in my book. Uh, and so, you know, they're the ones that brought that to my attention. And eventually I did write, Altar of Eden is a standalone thriller where there's a female veterinarian from New Orleans who has a big thrust into this weird uh, exotic animal smuggling ring that she needs to expose, and they're doing weird weird science with those animals. So that's the first time I actually had a, a veterinarian as one of my as one of my characters. But I don't know if I'll ever do that. I mean, pretty much, uh, <laughs> I, I yeah. don't know if I, I understand. Uh, and again, uh, you it's meant- a weird thing. It is a weird thing for a veterinarian to become. You know, there's a lot of lawyers. That become writers, you know, you know Gresham, and you know, a lot of medical doctors, mm-hmm. like Michael Crichton, they they drift into writing. And but you know, I, I think I may be the only veterinarian Vet. turned thriller <laughs> writer. Um, usually, we like our profession. <laughs> so yeah, it's, yeah. Well, and, and the reason I brought up the <laughs> the reason I brought up the gunshots, Tracy, is because Hollywood has taught us that when the bad guys get shot, they can't go to the hospital, so they look for the oh, vet. Gotcha. Oh, okay. All right. Just saw that. Okay. And then they go to the vet and they hold the vet under gunpoint and say, take this bullet out, man. Oh, yikes. I mean, I guess, you know what, this this goes back to, there's a continuing theme on the functional nerds of, I am way less television and movie literate than <laughs> than Patrick is. And so actually, literally the only time that I've seen that trope was in whichever the hell Terminator it was, where there's like more adult John Connor and like he goes and like injects himself with something in a veterinary office that he breaks into, but it's like way too much of a sedative and he's just like fucked up for an hour or a 
couple of hours or whatever. So I've actually only seen that trope once. It was not top of mind for me. Um, well, it just, yeah. it just it happened, happened in uh, the latest episode of Peacemaker. On, uh, yep. Oh, okay. Yes, it did. Yep. And I just watched that this morning, which is probably why it's top oh, of mind. Oh, all right. It's top yeah. of mind for you. So <laughs> I've seen it in everything. I mean, it's, it's, it is definitely a trope. It is definitely a trope. It's like that. It's that whole thing, you know, and then, and then they, they throw in the drama of, are they going to kill the poor veterinarian? Or are they going to tie him up? What are they going to do? You never kill a veterinarian. <laughs> You'd be Terrible surprised. People. So, yeah. uh, you so I mean, I want to kill the dog. No, that one as well. Yeah, yes. that, that that's also a big no no for for reasons. But uh, unless you're John Wick, in which case you do that and you get a whole franchise. So you know, <laughs> um, that's like the one situation I think where everything that yielded out of that, there were people who were like, "Team, don't kill the dog." Who were like, "I." Stick by my guns, but with with everything that unfolded. And so thinking about that, you mentioned before the xenobiology and sort of like the way the way that creatures from other worlds are, whether we're dealing with fantasy or science fiction or whatnot. I have to imagine, given that you have actual knowledge of how creatures need to be structured in order to survive, that you have certain favorite critters from the world of the imagination and certain critters where you're like oh jesus not this again this this doesn't work that's not how anything exists <laughs> so I, I would love to pick your brain on that one well again it's, it's nice to be able to lean on uh, my background and not just veterinarian but also the my undergrad degree which was in evolutionary biology so mm-hmm. it's you know it's you know I get to pull out my old textbooks and notes from you know, my classes like what did he say about that but again, the xenobiologists help too in, in figuring out exactly you know, what type of, of life forms could exist in there. I found a uh, – I'm a horrible, horrible artist, first of all. My maps of my world were, looked like a first grader drew them. Uh, luckily, there was a beautiful cartographer that I found that be- produced beautiful versions of the maps in the, of this world. But I also found a graphic artist, uh, a naturalist, who does these beautiful renditions of fantastical creatures. You know, oh. found her work online, contacted her, said, "Would you want to be part of this project?" So, you know, interspersed throughout Starless Crown are these sort of um, almost uh, like biological sketches, like you might find it in a naturalist oh, journal, like in a field of, notebook, of, of, or yeah. a, exactly a field notebook of, of a naturalist. So, I, I want to try to you know add that little little level of little vein of authenticity, like. You know, this is maybe what you're reading with Starless Crown is not just a fantasy adventure, but it's also is a, a bit of a historical, biological description of what's going on in this world. And but it was also fun working with that with that artist because she also brought up things that I never thought of. Even you know, I would deeply tried to make sure that this would fit from a from an environmental standpoint. But she's the one drawing the creatures. You know, she's like, well, where is this muscle going to be? You know, if this muscle was here, how is that going to move this limb? You know, I didn't get mm-hmm. that deep into it, but she did because she had to draw it. Mm-hmm. So we talk about, you know, are they arboreal or is this a desert dwelling creature or is this something that lives in a swamp? And if so, you know, how is it hunting? How is it feeding? And so that mm-hmm. added just the tiniest little nuances that really brought the creatures to life on the page in these drawings, which I thought was really cool. Because there's only so much description you can, you know, in regards to keeping your story moving forward. If I spent like five pages describing the, you know, the way the ankle moves of this gigantic herbivore uh it's gonna probably bore readers whereas you know they can just open the picture and there's two thousand you know, the picture's worth two thousand words so there's a picture of the creature that you can appreciate the yeah the uh, yeah. the details of that creature so it's just the scientists and me i love to make sure it's authentic <laughs> and i think fans really they like the feeling of intimacy that knowing things that aren't maybe plot critical but sort of part of the the environment of the text gives them and sometimes, you know, especially with, with really established narratives and franchises, you can revisit that material and lean into it in different ways. Like the book of Boba sure. Fett, when, when he gets the Rancor monster, spoiler, he gets yep. a pet Rancor monster. Like the whole idea that the Rancor, we have to sort of, we have to diffuse the idea of the Rancor that Luke faced, which was made to attack him and like create space for the idea of like the Rancor as you know, essentially a kind of analogy to like a, like a poorly treated pit bull that just needs the right sort of the right environment and the right rehab to be loyal and to be, to be loving. And of course the absolute spot on choice of Danny Trejo as being the Rancor monster (laughs) trainer. And I'm like, that is perfect. It's beautiful. I would change nothing. 
but, but I think to go back to, to your original thought there, Tracy, it's a lot of times these things, it's like, how do they exist? So you went to Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So the, the thing that people talk about quite a bit in Star Wars is in The Empire Strikes Back, the giant worm thing on the asteroid. Yeah. Right? It's like, okay, what does that eat? How does it survive? It's like the worms on Dune. I'm mm-hmm. sure there's 12 books that KJA and, and Brian have written talking about what the worms actually eat. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're, you, you have this gigantic creature. What does it eat? Right? Yeah. How does it survive? How does it get, grow to be that big? These are the questions I think a lot of times people have a problem with. You, you talked about the detail. Even if it's not in the book, mm-hmm. a lot of times the reader and the fan likes to know that the author thought about it. Yeah. And I, I go to back to Capricorn. I'm sitting on the panel talking about the expanse. And and I, I mentioned that I had read all the books. And someone in the audience is like, I, I personally don't care how the Epstein drive works. Mm-hmm. But someone in the audience is like, did they ever explain how the Epstein drive works? <laughs> right. Like, that's yeah. what they wanted to know. How does the drive work? I don't care. I, I actually like it when I don't know. Mm-hmm. The, the yeah. other one I always bring up is uh, Doctor Who. So Doctor Who has one of the best monsters in the Weeping Angels. Mm-hmm. If they had never done another episode after Blink, I would have been happy because they created the scariest damn monster you've ever seen. And part of the scariness of that monster is the mystery. Like we yeah. don't understand it. But every time they go back to the well, they decide they have to explain a little bit more and it gets a little less creepy. It gets a little less scary for me. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I, I understand exactly what you mean. And I think that that's, that's related to what, to what Jim's talking about. But I think it's also like you're, what, what you're describing, Jim, is sort of like a flavor text almost that's, that's present within the larger text of the Starless Crown and in the, in the series that it inhabits. And whether or not we actually revisit those specific creatures and come to understand them more intimately is, is almost besides the point. It's, it's just part of giving us a sense that, that this world could be real. Yeah, what I'd like to do down the line with the series is, is have addendums that you know, sort of explore things in greater detail. So you don't have to read the addendum if you don't want to, but if there is interest there, but if you do, yeah, then yeah. it is there because there's lots of that fascinates me that I just, that not just me, but my editors like Jim. <laughs> do you really need this much of a description or this? Can we can we trim this down to get back to the action? It's all right, but I say that I'll put it in the addendum. So, but it's, exactly, I'll make somebody read it. <laughs> and, uh, the line yeah, editor's going to thank you for this later. Exactly. <laughs> so, like in my Sigma books, you know, they have a lot of a uh, lot of science and a lot of historical mystery, and so a lot of again, I do a lot of research for those novels, and so uh, again, a lot of it I want to put in the novel, but it can't put in the novel because the story will slow down. So I discovered that if I do a what's true, what's not at the end of my books, yeah. when I lay down, I sort of pull aside the curtains and say, you know, this is where this is what's real in the story. This is what's based mm-hmm. on the back. Here's where you, here's some breadcrumbs you can follow if you like to learn more about the subject yeah. matter. Here's a few more details about that subject matter, and here's where I sort of stretch the truth a little bit or bent things to to, to make the story work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did that initially for a couple of reasons. I did that because of um, just repetitive emails. I get emails people saying, you know, where do, is this true or is that true or where do you get this information from? So I thought I'm just going to put it at the end of the book. I, that will save me a lot of time <laughs> having to answer the same question over and over yeah. again. But it was also because of a uh, of a one star Amazon review. Not that I've not mm-hmm. had I've had many of those, uh, but one this one irked me particularly. It's like Jim, you know, I was enjoying Mr. Rollins' novel until I got page so and so, and this happened, and it just it was so outlandish. It jumped the shark, threw me out of the story. Yeah, never read him again. And I'm going, mm-hmm. okay, well, that part is true. That's I didn't make <laughs> that part up. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's that uh, you know sometimes you know fact is stranger than fiction so i thought well i'm gonna get circum you know get away around that that i'm gonna you know, tell you what's what's real so that when it sounds outlandish in the story it's actually because i'm always searching for that weird bit of history that weird bit of science that's that does sound outlandish because i want to build a story around yeah. that so then i lay it out at the, at the end of the book so so eventually i like to do that it, with the uh with the starless crown universe also you yeah. never know. You never know what's going to cause one person to go, oh, no, this isn't. This can't be. I The book that I eventually got published, I remember taking it through critique group and sitting across from a guy. 
and he had, he'd read the, 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 a little bit and he's sitting there and he's very deadly serious. And he's like, okay, so here's the major problem that I have with this. Uh, you have a character who has an older brother who's 13 years older than them. That's simply not possible. And I said, well, my brother's 13 years older than I am. Yeah. My, I have a and, easily and, that type of span. Yeah. And, and he sat there staring at me. He's like, Oh, uh, well, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) A couple of years ago, Mary Robinette Cole, I don't think she does this very often anymore, but Mary Robinette was sharing on Twitter screenshots with identifying information removed of various one-star reviews. Her own books have gotten over time. And one of them was a one-star review of the first book in her, in her most recent series of books, like the relentless moon was in it and so forth. Uh, It was, it was a review for the calculating stars and this particular reader had wrote a wrote a critique for this one star review where they were like, well, I, I really enjoyed the story, but I get aggravated by uh, the author's insistence on using made up scientific terms that are really distracting all the time. For example, acetaminophen. What even is that? <laughs> And it was like, oh, baby child, no, oh, no, no, no. And just I, some part of me wants to see the Goodreads history of this human and like how many things where they've been like, a beaver? What even is a beaver? Like, how are you having a fur trapping stories with made up characters? You have to trap creatures that actually exist or like, I, I just, oh, my God. Yeah. So I mean, it's, if, you, it's, if you put a platypus in a book, somebody's probably going to go, that's not real. Yeah, they're like, just going to duck bill. What the hell? And it lays eggs, but also fur? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Lord. I think we might need a palate cleanser after that. We might need to turn our turn our eyes to the good in the world. Do we feel in Picks of the Week? Can we do it? Sure. Sure. All right. Picks of the Week. Okay, so I, I finished off in our last episode, and I feel like I owe it to to the the listeners to outdo myself for last time. So our most recent episode, I really took the whole IQ of the podcast down considerably by recommending a YouTube channel that's just a parrot saying along with its owner, but it's good, and I stand by it. This particular case. Uh, it is <clears throat> Tico and the man Frank Maglio. In fact, that's we got a double oh, really? pick of the week this week. I've I've cheated. I'm going to pick a game that my daughter has gotten super into. Those who are listeners of the podcast for a long time know that my daughter Deirdre is very much a tabletop gamer in the sense of you know fiddly bits and and various other stuff, and she just loves that kind of thing. She has a great mind for strategy and puzzles and all sorts of stuff. And a couple of weeks ago, we pulled out a game that hadn't hit the table in quite some time. It's called Sheriff of Nottingham. Um, And it's it's really fun. So the basic premise of Sheriff of Nottingham is, unsurprisingly, that our context is Sherwood Forest and its outlying communities. The Sheriff of Nottingham controls the market, and you are a vendor trying to bring your goods to market. The problem is the Sheriff of Nottingham is a dick, and he's going to try and prevent you from bringing things to the market that could make you more money. And he has the right to search your bag, which contains the goods you're bringing to market. You have all these cards that represent different types of goods. And the main types of goods are very medieval sorts of things. Like you can sell chickens and bread and cheese and apples. But there's also contraband. And some of those might be fancy types of apples that you're not supposed to have or fancy types of cheese like Gouda or whatnot that you shouldn't have. Or some of it might be goods that aren't related at all, like silk or gunpowder or whatever. The idea behind the game is... Everybody draws a hand of cards from which they decide to pick things that will go into their bag. And there's a literal physical bag. It's a little velvet bag with a snap. It's very satisfying to handle. And one person, we take turns every round with one person representing the Sheriff of Nottingham. And their job is to ask everybody at the table to declare what goods they're bringing to market. There are two rules about how you answer that question. One, you can only bring one type of good to market legally. Your bag can contain whatever the hell you want, and you can lie about its contents if you want, but you can only say that you have one type of good in it, no matter what's in it. The second rule is you can only have one type of good, period, within the bag to a limit of five. 
So you can't lie about the number of things that are in your bag. So if you put five cards in your bag, you can say, I have five apples, sir, when you in fact have one apple, two chickens, and you know, two loaves of bread or whatever. And the idea is you're trying to develop majorities of different types of goods so that in the end you can score lots of points. If the sheriff calls you out, then they get to frisk your bag and they get to confiscate your contraband and they get financial benefit from that. If they call you out and you were not lying and they have harassed you needlessly, now they owe you the value of whatever it is, whatever's in your bag as a penalty. And so it's basically a social deduction game. You're you're giving each other crap and you're sort of razzing each other. And over the course of the game, you kind of see who lies and who does. And you can actually bribe the sheriff and be like, you know what? Uh, I don't know, sheriff. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's just cheese in my bag here, but it could be a chicken fell in. I don't know. I don't know. If a chicken fell in my bag, just theoretically, what would it be worth it to you to not notice the chicken and, you know, stuff like this. And because Deirdre is 10 years old and has come into her powers of sarcasm and facetiousness and hard selling, she adores this game. So if you're looking for a game that's easy to teach, works really well with different numbers of people, plays pretty fast uh, and has a lot of replay value, you should check out Sheriff of Nottingham. It's a good time. I feel like someone could do a modern update of the game and call it TSA. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it could totally be like, I know you said take off my shoes, but what if there was something in those shoes that I didn't want you to see that was definitely not in any way sharp or explosive? Yeah. 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 (laughs) All right. Jim, how about you? Uh, Oddly enough, I'm also going with a game. Uh, nice. I'm a, I'm a big video game guy. It's a one, one way I sort of decompress, from, yeah. decompress, sure. connect, clear mm-hmm. my mind. And, uh, you know, I have a tendency to stick to a lot of shooter games. I want to kill zombies. I want to kill monsters. So it's a lot of, you know, Gears of War and you know, Halo. But then I had heard about the Hugo Award winning game Hades uh, that won oh, the Hugo yeah. Award. And I thought, well, you Wait, know, what was it called? Hades. Hades. Like Hades. The, uh, yeah. H A D E S. Yep, and uh, so I was intrigued. Like, wow, it's the first time a video game was awarded. It must be spectacular. And so I, you know, downloaded a copy, and and uh, it's uh, the graphics aren't that great. They're sort of entertaining, but they're not the level of you know the authenticity of, of uh, you know Gears of War or some of the uh, the other shooters. They're a little bit cartoonish, and the premise is sort of stupid. <laughs> it's basically you know you're. Hades and you're trying to you're trying to escape hell and so you have to there's obstacles you have to get through to try to escape and you keep dying literally you just go for a while and you die and you return right from the beginning of the game and you've learned a few things you go through it again and then you die then you come back and you learn a few things because uh and I thought well this is just I'm gonna get so bored with this mm-hmm. well about four in the morning I can't <laughs> stop playing this thing <laughs> Dialogue's yeah. funny. It's 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 it, there's there's nuances and and and, and tricks to it uh, that I was never expecting. Uh, the story takes off. It takes out in weird gambits that I wasn't uh, wasn't uh, anticipating. So uh, mm-hmm. I can I can see why it, it's one of those accolades. And so it's also you know I'm I'm probably gonna have a hard time making my next deadline because uh, <laughs> I'm a little preoccupied with getting out of hell. Yeah, I mean, I think that that um, on a larger scale that applies to many of us, but at least on an entertainment scale, you're having a better time of it. (laughs) There's there's another game that kind of has a similar principle. It's a it's a PS5 exclusive uh, called Returnal, Mm -hmm. and the graphics are better. I'll throw that out there right now. This is not my pick, but I'm just throwing it out there for Jim. And they uh, the concept is you you go until you die, and then. You, you wake up again at the crash where you crashed and then you head out the door and the world has changed. So every time you die, the world changes, the map changes and think, you've learned something, Yeah, but, the but now you have to go those, back through it. The success of those two games is infinitely interesting to me. And I think it, it's a testament to how much an audience will put up with essentially inconveniences to <laughs> their experience if you make the process of of re-experiencing things fresh and different every time. 
Yeah. Like if you find ways to sort of reinvigorate it and to deepen the narrative and to give them new nooks and crannies to explore. It, I mean, just the, the idea of like, you're just going to keep dying and starting over again sounds like just pumping quarters infinitely, like back in the eighties, but it is, there's, they figured out as game designers, how to make it a great deal more than that. And, and the twist in Returnal is that you find yourself dead. Hmm. And there's there's uh, there's always little bits and pieces of of what happened the last time or what happened this particular time to this version of yourself, and you're sitting there going, oh okay. Uh, you you get a log like a video log, and it talks about you know it, it it might even show you what happened to that version of yourself that died. So there's mm-hmm. the mystery of what the hell's going on. You keep running into think, your dead bodies, and sometimes you can pick whip, weapons up or, or information up from the dead bodies that you find randomly throughout the maps. I think um, it also just yeah. plays off uh, of my own personal OCD. It's you know, it's it's uh, there's definitely a compulsion with keeping to play this game. It's like patting your head. It's okay that you're OCD. This game's for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank sure. you. We now, know you're out there. <laughs> now, uh, uh, completely separate of all of that, my actual pick this week. Is is coincidental because because Jim mentioned it earlier. It's Peacemaker on HBO Max, okay. Which I didn't think that I would like because I don't I don't necessarily like the actor or the character from the Suicide Squad movie, and I thought it was really stupid that they picked that character to do a TV show about. It. I was like, oh my god, why why would they do this? The show has actually grown on me. I, I resisted it mm-hmm. for several weeks. And, and so I, I ended up binging several episodes in a row and going, okay, the, you know, this, the, the reason that this appeals to me is because it's James Gunn. It's his sense of humor. And it, 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 it has a lot of heart in it. And the, it, it's just, you know, from the episode that I watched today, the line that, that cracked me up is, you know, Peacemaker turning and looking at this guy and his face is just shredded and there's blood everywhere in and, and the context of it. But it, it, he looks at the guy and he's like, fucking raccoons are hardcore, man. (laughs) (laughs) And his face is just shredded from, from this raccoon that apparently went after him. It's stuff like that, that just cracks me up every single time. So it it is much better than I thought it would be. It's well worth your time. It's on HBO max. It's peacemaker. So go, go check that out. Fantastic. I had the same feeling too, is that I thought, uh, you know, now, why are they choosing that character out of Suicide Squad? Exactly, yeah. Off? Because, you know, he kills off, you know, uh, uh, one of the heroes of that. Yep. You know, made Spoiler if you haven't seen Suicide Squad. <laughs> he does something really horrible that, that's irredeemable almost. Uh, like, how, how are you going to resuscitate that character or re- to make him actually, uh, you know, appealing? But they, they do succeed in it, which is they They do. do. And it turns out, like, the whole reason that he was there in the Suicide Squad was to do this if it had to be done. You know, which yeah. which was interesting. They, you know, I'm I'm such a fan of the animated universe that DC created with with Batman, Superman, uh, and then the Justice League series, and then the Batman mm-hmm. Beyond, and all these interconnected things. And I really liked the Amanda Waller from the animated series, mm-hmm. played by uh, CCH Pounder, and uh, the Viola Davis version has not gotten there for me. But they, they do play a little bit with that in The Peacemaker as well. Okay. Uh, I, I just don't see her as, you know, I don't see her as the Amanda Waller that would basically help clone Bruce Wayne because Gotham always needs a Batman, if that makes sense. She seems more antagonistic towards the heroes than, than yeah. the Amanda Waller from the, and, and I mean, don't get me wrong, the Amanda Waller in the DC animated is very antagonistic, but uh, I don't know. I, I, it's just been frustrating a little bit for me. So, but then so is the entire DC extended universe of movies. I mean, come on. That is fair. All right. We have a well, whole conversation on that topic. Yeah, that, is, that's it. that is an episode unto itself. So in the meantime, if, oh, as you're coming off. The other potential pick that I was going to make was the steampunk rocket behind Jim. There is a very cool <laughs> rocket that is behind Jim. Which, you know, a little astronaut too, Jim. Oh, nice. it's very good. Yeah, I like. We, we like him. It fits right in there. Nice. Yeah, you know what? You know what else is a rocket? A Hugo Award. A Hugo Award <laughs> is a rocket. Um, yes, is. And I just, you know, for those of you, if you're feeling a little dizzy and if the air is feeling a little thin, it's not too late for you to just 
add that to your fan cast ballot. And I, I promise we'll turn on life support any minute now. Just, <laughs> just real, real soon. Before people's consciousness fades to black and they, they end up gasping their last in the, in the recesses of space, Jim, where can they find the Starless Crown and you and all your other awesome stuff? Uh, the book's anywhere. It's in all, all formats. It's audio version. Great narrator. Nicola Barbary does a beautiful job. Obviously, e-formats everywhere. Uh, physical copies. Almost any bookstore should have it. Uh, you can find me at jamesrollins.com. It's the encyclopedia of James Rollins. Everything you want to know. There's a section on, like, if you want to be a writer, what I've learned. The you know, It's you know a gorgeous website. It's a really well, good you. website. <laughs> and we're just in the process of revamping it. So we'll see if you, you still think that when we... Uh, launch the new one but again i'm on facebook and twitter so if you want to know the day-to-day you know what i'm eating for lunch you know that's that's there so all the important stuff all right well thanks for being with us jim it's been fun thanks welcome to march spring will be sprunging wait springing Eh, i don't know but anyway it's happening soon and that means it's time for a new bumper first on the agenda beyond the trope Giles and Michelle over at Beyond the Trope should be scratching their ears and wondering who's been talking about them. It's me! I've been talking about them here and in other places like Capricorn 42. Why? Because they have a pretty nifty little podcast. They talk to authors and artists just like we do and release episodes on Tuesdays, just like we do. So if you subscribe to both our podcasts, it's like getting a double feature every week. In other news... I mentioned before a Capricorn 42. That's because Tracy and I had a lot of fun there, especially spending time with several of our patrons. Becoming a patron doesn't just mean you get to hang out with us at conventions, although you might. It means also getting access to things like monthly hangouts, a patrons-only episode of the podcast every month, and even a private Facebook group where we talk about extra nerdy things. It's as close to the green room for the show as you can get without... You know, actually being in the green room. Check out patreon.com slash functional nerds for more information about becoming a backer. What's next? Well, April, I guess, comes after March. I'll probably have to record another bumper. But that's easily days away or more. Who knows? (laughs) Time. Time is so stupid. Then there's ShyCon. The Worldcon in September, where we'll probably be there in person. It's likely, I mean, very likely, but depends on a lot of things, you know? So, I don't know. Anyway, where did I put the link to the Hugo nomination ballot? I know I had it here somewhere. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. Okay, that's probably a good enough signal.